0: Hello, and welcome to the Combat and Classics podcast. This is Brian Wilson in Dallas, Texas.
1: Shiloh Brooks at the University of Colorado in Boulder. And I'm Jeff St. John's College
0: in Annapolis, Maryland. We are back with more of the Anabasis, Anabasis, The Ascent of Cyrus by Xenophon. We are on to book two, and Jeff is going to give us an overview of the book, and Shiloh is going to ask us an opening question. All you, Jeff. Jeff. Yeah, thanks, Brian. So uh, maybe the best way to do an
1: overview is just to compare how things are for the 10,000 Greeks at the beginning and at the end of this book. Um, At the beginning, Xenophon gives a little summary of what he's told us in book one. And he basically points out that things are pretty good for the Greeks. They thought they won. Um, In fact, maybe to put it a little more strongly, the Greeks did win. They prevailed, it's all the, uh, the enemy soldiers that they encountered, they came back to their camp, they spent their night there. Xenophon even omits the details his summary that they were out of food, right? It seems not to have bothered them too much. Things look pretty good for the Greeks. They thought they were the victors. By the end of this book, all the main Greek generals are dead. They had their heads cut off and 200 of their fellow soldiers were slaughtered. Why did they have their heads cut off? They went into the Persian camp, into the great king's camp, Tessafernes camp, without any weapons and into his tent without any weapons. And predictably, maybe, uh, they ended up dead. So uh, the question is, how did that happen? And uh, the story of this book isn't a lot of a story of marching from place to place, although there is some of that. Um, Most of what happens in this book is under a truce where it looks like the Persian forces, the great king's forces have agreed to lead the Greeks um, back to safety um, out of the Persian territory by a different route than the one they came in because the one they came in, there were deserts in that route. So uh, the bulk of this is under the, at least, stated notion that there's a truce between the two sides. And yet, uh, the Greek position is much worse by the end of the book. So with contrast, as a a kind of summary, let me pass it over to Shiloh, and he's going to get us started with a question here.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm interested in the, the way Xenophon is moving from leader to leader as the chapters transition. So we had Cyrus at the beginning. We have this man, Clearchos, now. And I assume at some point we're going to need to trans, uh, transition to the third. And I hope greatest leader, a man by the name of Xenophon. But uh, to focus uh, on the second chapter, you know, as Jeff said, there's this great, um, horrifying, uh, satisfying and stupefying execution of the generals and my question is you know I want to discuss Clearchus's character and its difference from Cyrus and and also how it stands on its own so I think the best way to do that is to pose the question why uh, does Clearchus trust Tissaphernes and engage in um, relations with him?
0: Yeah it's probably good to look I really like what Xenophon does here in that he once everybody's dead, then he gives us background on these guys. Um, it seems like it's an interesting kind of literary device, you know, like normally mm-hmm. you get the stuff before the beheading scene, you know, you get the, like the little literary flashbacks and the kind of moments that were important to the characters before, before you kill them, before the exit stage left. Um, but and Clearchus is I think the longest description and probably the most interesting and I'm trying because it is so long um I guess this is beginning of chapter six Mm -hmm. um yeah so you know Xenophon's describing like who's who got killed and who got schwacked and uh, one of them, Clearchus, was agreed by all those who had experience of him to have seemed to be a man who was both warlike, warlike and war-loving to the extreme. For as long as the Lacedaemonians were at war with the Athenians, he remained with them. But when peace arose, he persuaded his city that the Thracians were being unjust to the Greeks, and arranging it as best he could with the ephors, he sailed out in order to make war against the Thracians who dwelt above the Chersonese and Parenthus. So then, what happens is the ephors are like, "Nah, change of plan," and Clearchus is like, "Hmm." Yeah. I don't like that plan. And we had a kind of word for this in Marine Corps land, which was um, kind of banana warriors where in the kind of um, Central America in the early 20th century, guys would just kind of go off into the jungle. And if they got orders to do something differently than they originally had planned, if they didn't like it, they would just pretend they never got the message. Um, And so Clearchus does something similar with the Thracians. And you know, Xenophon sums it up there in chapter six, where he says, these seem to me to be the deeds of a man who is war loving. When it is possible for him to be at peace without shame or harm, he chooses to make war. When it is possible for him to return to an easy-going life, He wishes to do hard labor so long as it be in making war. When it is possible for him to possess money without risk, he chooses to diminish his funds by making war. He was willing to spend on war just as on a favorite or some other pleasure. So fond of war he was. Mm -hmm. And I think the key there is that he was also pretty good at it. And so I think that, uh, you know, Shiloh to your question about how did, you know, Clearchus do this? Why was he so dumb is um, because he was cocky because, because of, you know, since we're doing Greek, we'll we'll call it hubristic. But it was—it's really just. Well, this has worked a lot of times in the past. Me just going, you know, hey, diddle, diddle, right up the middle, um, and like, and and also a little bit of, you know, I'm a mortal. I keep winning. I keep winning battles. I keep surviving battles. So nothing bad is going to happen to me. Yeah. Uh, do I, we do we feel like that's a decent snapshot? I love the way you laid it
1: out because it follows directly Xenophon's description here. Right. And it immediately runs into complications that we have to then turn to and explain. Right. So here's this guy that uh, you've just made the case, right? He seems to love war. He loves war like other people love um, other people, their companions, or, uh, you know, uh, some hobby or something like that. Right. This is his pastime. He doesn't just do it as a necessity. Right. So you would expect that a guy like that in a situation that he was faced with. You just won a victory and now the question is fight or truce, would choose fight? Obviously he would choose fight, he's a war lover. That's not what he chooses, right? He chooses truce. So, you know, we've immediately got one of these weird juxtapositions, a little bit like what happened in book one, where we got this eulogy of Cyrus at the end, and it's, oh, Cyrus was so honest, right? And we've just spent the previous seven chapters or whatever it was reading about how Cyrus lied to everybody, right? Xenophon does this. Okay, so this is good. We have this war lover who seemed not to choose peace ever in his life until this moment when he does. So What's what's the catch? We have to modify this somehow. Is there so
2: there's there's? It seems to me like Brian has set out a thread of Clearchus's character. Jeff, you have then presented us with a conclusion. How do we get from a man of this character to this decision? And then what I want to add is that there's a third sort of. Uh, you know, thing that has to be considered here, another thread in the braid, and that is his um, piety. And it's just so odd to me that, and I'd like to psychologically make sense of this, a war-loving man who also feels it necessary, as Clearchus does, to consult the sacrifices before major decisions. Mm -hmm. Um, He seems to, to have a genuine concern about what the sacrifices say, And I'm trying to determine for myself whether I think a war loving character and a pious character um, go together and how those two things might lead to the decision to make a truce. But I don't quite understand the psychological soup of how the war love and the God love come together Mm -hmm. to result in this decision. So I don't know if either of you can shed any light on that, Mm -hmm. but that might get us a little bit further to understanding Jeff's um, question. Mm-hmm. well do we
0: I'll, I'll play devil's advocate here a little bit is Clearchus pious you know we only get the one his apparent piety yeah <laughs> but and, he that, does and that's do what it. I, that's yeah he does do it but it's curious as to the timing right uh this is at book one or chapter one uh around line nine. Uh so the, the king's heralds show up and then Clearchus, nevertheless Clearchus said this much that it was not for the victors to surrender their weapons because the Persians are telling Greeks to surrender their weapons uh, but he said you men and generals answer them with the most noble and best answers you have, I will return at once for some one of his assistants called him to see the entrails that had been taken out of a sacrificial victim for Clearchus chance to have been sacrificed so then the other the other kind of cats and dogs start chatting and Clearchus is gone the whole time. And it seems like if you're having a council of war and you're, you're at least in the mix as to in charge, who's in charge is still a little fuzzy, but you're still in the mix and you just kind of bow out of the, you know, command briefing where we're all going to decide what we're doing to go check out some entrails. Like, is that, like what, what's going on there? Is that piety or is he out of his depth? Does he think he's out of his depth in kind of a, a war council?
1: Well, I, th- I think these are good questions because uh, Xenophon will later note that um, there was a certain time, this is in uh, Book 2, Chapter 2, Section 5, he'll say at that point, from then on, Clearchus ruled. So Clearchus's um, rule over the uh, Greek forces at this point is not yet established, right? So yeah, it's an excellent question. Things are in flux. Um, it's not clear which of the Greek generals is going to emerge at the head. And Clearchus uh, chooses this time to say, yeah, you guys discuss um, the question that's been put to us. I'm gonna go check the sacrifices, right? And and you know we're always looking for stratagems. We're always trying to think um, cleverly about these things. So is this a stratagem? Um, and I'm, I'm open to an argument that it is. There's one thing I'll, I'll note uh, that might be um, significant in this context, that principle that Brian cited, which is the only thing Clearchus is willing to say at this point, right? Victors don't give up their weapons. Uh, that's a um, second formulation of uh, what victors get according to Clearchus. The first formulation is uh, victors get to rule right and when he when he suggests that um it looks like the greeks being the victors they should get to rule um but the first thing he does is he turns to this um other barbarian leader um ariaeus and says hey do you want to take cyrus's place do you want to be the ruler of this army that's going against the great king so I guess, I don't know, maybe this is a a piece for me that that does support um, a piece of evidence that there is a kind of piety here. When Cyrus is dead, the first thing that Clearchus seems to want to do is find another Cyrus, another person to follow, right? Um, So that just, just as a piece of evidence, but how far does that get us to piety and does it help us with putting piety and war loving together?
2: Well, if you look at chapter five of book two, this is what I had in mind, certainly the sacrifices you guys mentioned. But then chapter five of book two, around page 87 of Wade Ambler's translation, when Clearchus speaks, he talks, he's talking to Tissaphernes, and he puts a great deal of emphasis on the gods and the oaths. So at parenthetical three, I know on the one hand, Tissaphernes, that there have been oaths between us, that handshakes have been exchanged, pledges that we will not be unjust to each other and then if you go down um the page to parenthetical between seven and eight um all things are subject to the gods in every way and in all places the gods are equally masters overall i judge it to be so with regard to both the gods and our oaths into whose safekeeping we deposited the friendship that we contracted um and so, he, you know, this is the man who we, we posed the opening question, why does he trust the guy? And now in this speech, he's saying, well, look, we've had these oaths and the gods and you don't, you know, you don't break oaths that you've made in the eyes of the gods and these kinds of things. And it just reminded me some of Machiavelli um, talking about the naivety of the religious man, like, oh, the, you know, they'll, they'll do good if I do good, as though there's any reason for them to do good if you do good and not merely to take advantage of your idiotic goodness for their own uh benefit and so he he, i don't know how serious he is here or or you know this is a great piece of rhetoric i don't deny that and there are people listening and we'd have to take all that into consideration but nonetheless there's a bit
0: of that here yeah and that makes sense it's from a personality standpoint it it makes sense to me i mean it, it first off it does back up that piety thing so Thank you for bringing that up because I forgot that he had opened with that with uh, Tissaphernes. It also is interesting because having been in some negotiations in the past, both on the business side and in just kind of quasi-war side, like the side that tells the truth in like intimate detail is a lot of times the one with the worse negotiating position, the, the less power because they're trying to make up for that lack of power with reason. You know, they're saying, hey, I, you know, this, is, this is where we're jammed up, here's why, uh, you know, here's what we want from you because we're jammed up. And the person across from the table is going, you know, at least internally, thank you for laying out all of your strategic weaknesses. Thank you for laying out all of your critical vulnerabilities. I really appreciate that. Uh, and then a lot of times they'll not really give you much in return and whereas tizziferni's you know lays out in his response uh, something that seems reasonable you know if we wanted to kill you we could have done it by now and it was it was definitely throwing throwing me off a lot you know i was like how are we in book 2 and everything's just kind of hunky dory i'm like how are we going <laughs> to do the rest of these books if the rest of this is just like oh, they're just going to kind of walk and be escorted and you know, they're going to put on bazaars and markets or let them forage, like, this is going to be a boring book. Um, so it's interesting from that, that, per, that perspective. And it's also interesting, you know, we, I, I mean, Clearchus ha- probably, I guess, has to know that Tissaphernes, you know, maybe he doesn't. Uh, I'm trying to think if Clearchus would explicitly have known that kind of turned on Cyrus and and snitched him out to Artaxerxes, you know, back in back in book one, I assume he does. But it's just interesting to look at those two characters and Clearchus being pious, or at least using piety to try to get some leverage. And Tissaphernes, you know, sticking with his character as well of saying one thing and doing another.
2: Well, that's what's so shocking is that Tissaphernes uh, his response uh, on parenthetical 16 is, I'm pleased, Clearchus, to hear prudent words from you. I mean, prudent words from you. He's just, you know, he's just heard the least, pru- he just said the least prudent thing, as Brian's pointed out. He's told him all these things that he's going to, how he's going to act and that the gods matter to him. And 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 if you recall, Clearchus was made king because of his prudence. And I think this is just a giant joke. From Xenophon, like they, you know, on the surface, Clearchus appears prudent when maybe what Xenophon is showing us is that Clearchus is in some ways the least prudent of all of the characters in in book two, certainly. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, it, it does. I think that's got to be the ultimate judgment, right? That there's a, a really deep flaw, deep failing in Clearchus. But I think, um, Xenophon doesn't um, make the road to that judgment very smooth for us because there are all kinds of signs that um, uh, Clearchus does have prudence, right? So let me just list some of them. Uh, When the Persians show up to negotiate the truce, Clearchus forms his men up so that the best looking and armed soldiers are on the outside of the phalanx and the soldiers who are poorly off or unarmed are in the center. In other words, he hides his weakness. Uh, he runs into another army. There are apparently at least three Persian armies on the side of the Greek, king, uh, on the side of the Persian king, the great king, um, who are in the neighborhood. And when he runs into this other army, he has his men march uh, march two abreast, right. And occasionally they stop their march, and so it must have taken hours, right, to get them past um, the Persians. And so it looks like this tremendous force. He's not just familiar with the arts of deception. He employs them successfully. Yeah.
2: Well, I mean, is there a difference in character between those arts? I mean, you know, it seems to me these are things Machiavelli would say, there are things one can touch. You can see them. Men believe what they can touch and what they can see. But there's a difference between what you can touch and what you know. And it's not clear to me what he knows in the art of spiritual warfare as you might, might say, versus what he knows with his war loving uh, knowledge of tactics. And there, this is where he seems to me to fall short is this spiritual
0: or intellectual warfare.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. Sorry, Brian, go
0: ahead. Well, no, I just, I do want to point out one thing about Clearchus and his piety. And that is that he, he is excommunicated. Is he um, expelled from, oh, he's sentenced to death. Mm-hmm. So this is back at six and it's, it's the e4s, it's the Spartan priests that say, you know, you have to stop the attack Clearchus and Clearchus just ignores it. Right. So I think that that's just an important or maybe important point. And discussing Clearchus's piety—is it, is it a newfound piety? Because before, when the priests were like, "You have to stop this," he went, oh, "Screw you, priests! I'm doing it anyway." Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was the the reason that he was sentenced to death by the magistrates of Sparta on the grounds that he disobeyed the priests. Mm-hmm. Am I am I interpreting that? Is does that sound like a decent interpretation?
1: I mean, it, it seems right to me, and I would add that in the pile that says that there's something. Um, there is something Machiavellian about Clearchus, right? In other words, it's not just a straightforward um, account of a goody-two-shoes who uh, is tricked by the first devious person he meets. He's not a goody-two-shoes. He himself is devious, right? So I think what we've got to do is we've got to drive the wedge somehow between those things that... Are consistent with his being um, hard-headed and clever, and those things that are pious that would eventually lead him into a very um, uh, soft-headed and uh, dangerous situation with his um, with his uh, fellow generals in the tent of the of Tissaphernes. Does is this a way to to make the difference? Um, He doesn't think that he needs to behave well towards. Um, enemies he has no problem with deceiving enemies but he does think that under certain circumstances enemies will not deceive him does that distinction make sense
2: yeah it seems like he he has because he's a war lover he has this gentleman's view of war and that leads him both to be very skilled uh, on the one hand but also to abide by certain rules or uh, certain norms. Um, And so he trusts a fellow warrior, uh, sort of fellow warrior king. And that's not, that's naive.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I, I, I think it also might be he thinks he's the smartest guy in the room. Right? Like he thinks that his deceptions are so good um, and he can see through other people's deceptions would be would be my you know kind of pass at that reading the tea leaves if you will. I also think kind of you know tying into Jeff's question. Well, I don't remember what it was. Do you remember what it was?
1: Yeah, I was just trying to see whether we could make a finer distinction between the sorts of things that Clearchus um, does that we might be inclined to call prudent, and then the sorts of things that uh, he fails to do that would be even more prudent. And the suggestion was uh, because of his piety. Right? And I take it Shiloh suggested one way to draw the line is to say, there's a kind of deception that's permitted in war, making your troops look bigger than they are. That's, that's fine. Uh, you can love war uh, and engage in those deceptions, but inviting enemy generals over and then cutting their throats, not permitted. That's a no-no. And you, yeah. if war means that you can't love it. And right. so as a lover of war, uh, Clearchus will engage in one kind of deception, one kind of prudence and not the other.
2: Yeah, we, we, you can you can modernize this by thinking about the Christian king as, you know, a, a king who can who can do the tactics, but who when it comes time to really get dirty, uh, you know, is, is you know, is a gentleman is a, is a Christian. And and um, I mean, th- this is at least a one plausible way of, of explaining his behavior i'm curious just to add an additional wrinkle if you if you look at book two chapter five parenthetical 40 um xenophon speaks about clearchus the man like xenophon xenophon says xenophon said you know when he i love when he does that it makes me it makes me so excited i can hardly stay in my chair but Uh at any rate um so Ariaeus says, Clearchus was manifestly plotting, first against Tissaphernes and Arontus and all of us who are with them. To this, Xenophon said the following, Clearchus then, if he broke the truce in violation of his oaths, has received his punishment, for it is just that those who violate their oaths be destroyed. But as for Prozenus and Menon, they are both your benefactors, etc. And so he Xenophon takes the pious position too. He says, look, hey, you violate the oaths. You got to be destroyed. I mean, he, Xenophon sort of comes back as this defender of justice, and, but he leaves it as this conditional if he broke the truce in violation of his oaths. So I'm curious if any of you can shed light on, I suspect when Xenophon makes Xenophon talk like lights should go off in our head. And I'm wondering what exactly this means about Xenophon's judgment of the Clearchus situation. Well,
0: can I? I'm remembering the the Jeff question that I that I wanted to address, which was a little bit before, which is about Arius um, and Clearchus wanting to have Arius become the king of Persia, even though by his code, the victor and Clearchus and the Greeks were the victor should be should be in charge. Uh, I would potentially posit it's because of money, right? Mm. That in 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 book. In chapter six, when he's talking about Clearchus leaving Sparta because, you know, he was condemned to death. Uh, right after that, Xenophon writes, because of this, he was sentenced to death by the magistrates at Sparta on the grounds he disobeyed. Being now in exile, he went to Cyrus and by what sort of arguments he persuaded Cyrus has been written elsewhere. And Cyrus gave him 10,000 derricks. Although he took these, he did not turn when he was going life with this money, collected an army and made war on the Thracians. So he it's clear that, you know, Xenophon makes it clear that money's involved in, you know, Clearchus's motivation. Mm-hmm. And, and twice in this book, he, I think it's twice he pitches Tissaphernes on, Hey, why don't you send us against the Egyptians? You know, why don't you send us against these guys? Yeah. And so I think it might be the same of wanting Arius to be in charge is so that he doesn't have to worry about anything except fighting and getting paid. Mm-hmm. So, Just, just a hypothetical there. Um, And so then to get to the the Xenophon quote in terms of O's. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if I can tease that one out. Was Clearchus plotting against Tissaphernes and Arontas? Do we get that sense that that was the case? I, I doesn't, that doesn't feel like it was.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess uh, to the extent that there is no common good, as far as I can tell, between the Greeks and the Persians, then if he wasn't manifestly plotting against them, he should have been. That would have been a failure in his um, charge as general of the Greeks to figure out how to get out from under these um, this barbarian army that's threatening the Greeks, right? So on some level, of course he was manifestly plotting against them, right? Uh, The charge is just, and if he swore that he wasn't doing it, well more fool he, right? But uh, I mean, the thing that strikes me about this Xenophon um, remark, and I agree with Shiloh that they kind of leap out when they happen because you think, oh yeah, our, our author is speaking up. Um, is it resembles um, something that was said by, I think uh, just a a young man said earlier, um, where a contradiction is detected in the story somebody's telling, right? So if uh, you know uh, one of your enemies shows up and says, oh yeah, those three guys you sent us, well, we executed one of them and the other two, they're the ones who turned them in, right? They're the ones who, they're really our friends now, but none of the three is in evidence you say, well, wait a minute. Okay, so where are the other two? (laughs) You know, what what are they up to? Have them come back and tell us what happened, right? So he basically calls bullshit on this account, and that happened a little bit earlier. The Greeks were stuck between a, um, I think it was the River Tigris and this canal, and it turned out it was a perfectly defensible spot, uh, except this guy shows up and says, oh yeah, somebody's going to try to trap you here. They're going to knock... Uh, down the bridge over the river. You got to get out of here as quickly as possible. And somebody says, it's not identified as Xenophon, but somebody makes a very similar rhetorical move. Well, wait, if they knock the bridge down, how is that going to help them? How is it going to harm us? Right. This doesn't make any sense. If they wanted to kill us now, they'd move against us. Obviously, there's something wrong with this story. It doesn't hold together. So this is a person and, you know, certainly Xenophon who has an ear for when things hold together, right? And he thinks the, the story here does not hold together. Um, he might've thought that, you know, if he had talked to Clearchus about his plans, he might've thought that Clearchus's story doesn't hold together either.
0: It is something kind of in the military mind that's, that's really hard to do and I think to understand, which is the, the focus on morality on the one hand and the focus on clear communication uh, and the demands to be as deceptive as is humanly possible. Right. And it, it's it, it's very rare in my experience to find people that are good at both. <laughs> they, they are either good at one uh, or they're good at the other and there are significant risks involved in being on either side of that, right? If you are a super clear, pious, you know, super high and tight, uh, you know, super squared away dude who, you know, is excellent, an excellent technician yeah. in the in the art of war and commit to it with a lot of energy, uh, you're probably pretty bad at deceiving the enemy at, you know, you're, you're great at logistics and you're great at planning. Uh, but you don't really, nothing you do takes the enemy by surprise. Like it is exactly obvious what you do, uh, and what you're going to do because you haven't taken really any measures to deceive the enemy at all. Um, and if I, if I, could get up and reach over to my bookcase, I would show you guys my old unit coin, which freaks people out because the, the saying is deny, detect, deceive. Mm. <laughs> and it's, it seems very strange for a unit in the Marine Corps to have a, uh, a saying like that. Yeah, But that was, that was part of our job. Yeah. Um, and that, But on the flip side, you have folks, and it was more than, more than one in my old job, who were so good at being deceptive. <laughs> who were so incredibly good at that, uh, that it led to, you know, you you rate right what you skate. Like, how much can I get away with? Mm-hmm. Uh, because they were just so... I don't want to say devious but so what what is what's the word that um what's the greek term for cunning so we can kind of like move it back a little bit however well, yeah. odysseus is described
1: deinos clever right or yeah. um having many ways yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. working yeah. many things yeah polymechanos yeah 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 well all right so this is good because yeah you've pointed out that there's a fundamental tension, let's say in the military art, if I can kind of blur over a lot of the distinctions you made just in favor of of one phrase, um, between um, doing what one ought, right? And and succeeding in the mission, right? And it looks like uh, in chapter six, Xenophon echoes or reflects that distinction you just made by um, using the words uh, "warlike" and "war loving." Right? Like, what sense does it make to say somebody's both warlike and war loving? Aren't they the same thing? And then Xenophon's uh, Xenophon says, "You know, uh, it really does seem to me that he did the deeds of a war loving person. As for being warlike, we only get one sentence." And it's just, oh, he seemed to be fit for war, right? So it's much more um, limited. So it does seem like Xenophon's thinking about exactly the kind of distinction you're laying out, Brian. There's something about the um, uh, dot your I's and cross your T's um, approach to war that um, Clearchus has. And there's something about the down and dirty, do anything to win side that he lacks. And that makes him maybe not so fit or not so warlike a human being.
2: I wanted to ask you, Jeff, uh, on these lines, because I had been suggesting, that, or at least pointing to the naivety of Clearchus. You are now talking about a certain lack of, uh, of warlike character. When we were interpreting the Xenophon remark just a few minutes ago, you suggested that Xenophon might well have known that Clearchus was, in fact, um, plotting against Tissaphernes. And if this is the case, then doesn't this add some complexity to the thing? In other words, I had, we had made, and I'm just, so I just want to get some clarity from you. We had made Clearchus and we're continuing to make Clearchus seem like he's a bit of adult when it comes to, you know, um, the art of uh, a certain kind of intellectual warfare, a kind of pious king, or at least naive, he agrees that, In war, you don't do injustice to your enemies of certain sorts because it is bad. But would this, uh, would this are you, were you arguing earlier that in fact he was preparing to do injustice to his enemy, which would mean that all the stuff he said to Tissaphernes about the gods and their oaths and we're now friends and you don't do injustice to your friends was all a bunch of junk? In which case, he just got he's not a fool, he just got outdueled. Uh, maybe he's not as good a liar as Tissaphernes, but he, you know,
1: still he's not a, a total dolt either. Yeah, I think I'm inclined to the view that he's not a total dolt. Um, I didn't want to suggest that he was in fact um, plotting against Tissaphernes, I just wanted to suggest that from Xenophon's perspective, he ought to have been. Oh, I see. Um, okay. But, uh, but let, let me just throw one more detail into this mix. So right now I think we've got what I would call a good first order approximation or account of, of what is up with Clearchus. Um, he, he is capable of some kind of deception. Um, He has some aptitude for war, but there's this line he will not cross and that's his weakness, right? And we've cited um, some things he says when he talks to Tissaphernes in, uh, I guess it's um, chapter five um, that suggests that, right? That he wants uh, to have this face-to-face with Tissaphernes in order to make it clear that he's not plotting against Tissaphernes, and they've got every reason to work together, right? They've got a common interest. There's just one more detail I think Tissaphernes is promising to Clearchus that if Clearchus shows up at his tent, Tissaphernes will tell him who has been speaking against him, right? And there'll be some kind of mutual um, betrayal and internal punishment of both sides, right? So Clearchus will tell Tissaphernes who the anti-Persian, anti-alliance people are on his side Tissaphernes will tell Clearchus who's been bad-mouthing the Greeks on his side, right? They'll remove the obstacles to um, the common good that, that uh, Clearchus thinks exists between them. And I'm wondering how much of a motive is that to punish the people on your own side more than to defeat the enemy? Is that where Clearchus's problem comes in? And is that somehow connected
0: with piety? Well, then you get into the the greater good argument but i'm reminded when i think of the greater good uh back in chapter one where phil uh Falinas, the athenian or the greek who's used as a messenger to the greeks from the persians yeah. um this is around 12 uh theopompus an yeah. athenian said, Falinus, now, as you see, we have no other good except our weapons and our virtue. And having our weapons, we think that we could make use of our virtue as well. But if we surrender these, we think we would also be deprived of our lives. Do not think then that we will surrender to you the only goods we have, but with these, we will do battle over your goods as well. Hearing this, Falinus burst out laughing and said, but you are like a philosopher young man and what you say is not without charm know that you are a mindless fool however if you think that your virtue could prevail over the king's power and so it, it, you know it can't be happenstance that xenophon the student of socrates you know decides to have a line from a fellow greek that's you know just saying oh philosophy cute <laughs> we got more guns and we got more people so you know get out of here with your little cute little philosophy
1: Yeah. In fact, apparently in some of the manuscripts of of this book, instead of uh, Theopompus, the name Xenophon appears there, right? So that the the guy who says, oh, yeah, if we hold on to our weapons and our virtue, maybe we'll be able to take your goods. That is Xenophon, who is then mocked for being, you know, a young, hot-headed... Foolish believer in the power of virtue, although the 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 criticism uh, leaves off the weapons. It doesn't say anything about the weapons, right? So um, uh, it could be that the the guy who is criticizing this young man doesn't hasn't really heard what he said. But uh, just to to press maybe one more step on this Clearchus thing. So is it Clearchus's failing, or is the particular form that his piety takes? a um, tremendous desire to punish the human beings who are on his side. that that's the most important thing to him. And he's oddly enough, even willing to risk his life in the hands of the enemy in order to find out who he ought, um, who he would rightly punish among his own soldiers, right? It's it's a strange thought, but I wonder if that's what Xenophon is saying.
0: Well, I I re-listened to our episode on book one of this and i i made the comment that rules are for assholes mm. that as a commanding officer if you have somebody who's a huge force multiplier and they do something wrong you can kind of pretend you don't see it and i, re- I remember listening to that and kind of like like having a little feeling in my stomach like oh is that uh i don't know how i feel about that now that i'm listening to it back but it would be something to consider in this circumstance right that you know you you to to take someone who is not known for their um, philosophical consistency, you you go to war with the army you have, uh, and so being in this situation, Clearchus should probably or potentially um, should. Try to uh, keep as much cohesion as possible, except that there's going to be some people that are bickering or complaining because that's the nature of being in any military. Mm-hmm. Um, but not not try to get them executed by the enemy, you know, or not have the enemy choose which ones are doing that or point out which ones are doing it, as right. that could be a fairly easy deception um, if if it's believable. Right. It,
2: the Jeff so you, you um, you're talking about the way Clearchus um, wants to punish his own men mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm curious are, are you linking this isn't there another place earlier in the reading where he beats his own men to get them to fight um,
1: right. it's, it's um' getting, it's kind of like that scene um, in Cyrus's army where the people leap into the mud to move the wagons along, right? And they neglect their finery and all these things to do it so that he can see them. Whereas Clearchus, I think the story is he himself uh, jumps into the mud and puts his hand to things and that inspires uh, other people through shame. So he's got a very hands-on style of leadership. He carries a staff in one hand and a spear in the other, I think it said. I think the staff for beating and the spear always to be ready to fight. Um, but there is some sense, yeah, in which he he beats his own. Uh, he likes the people around him to feel ashamed. And one of the things Xenophon says in the eulogy in, in chapter six, if I remember correctly, is, oh yeah, this works pretty well when you're in rough situations. But as soon as things are good, people... Quit. Yeah, they leave.
0: Yeah, Jeff. Just to tee you up, you you mentioned before we started recording the idea of the the palm tree, and that that, that was a potentially important point. So I was wondering if you wanted to throw it in the mix, <laughs> since we since we're running short on time.
1: Yeah. All right. I'm I'm happy to uh to jump into the weird. Uh. So um this is in uh, chapter three of book two. And uh, I take it to be an indication of uh, Xenophon's sense of humor, uh, but also to have a serious point. And we might have laid out um, a big chunk of it now, and all that remains is to apply it to other situations. Um, It's on page 81 of the Ambler translation, and um, it's in uh, parenthetical 14 is where it starts. So they're under a truce right now. The Greeks and the Persians are marching kind of close to one another. The Um, Barbarians who were on the Greek side are slowly defecting over to the the Persian side as a result of a kind of psychological warfare involving their families. Uh, And so things are getting a little um, tense, but basically the Greeks are allowed to eat um, from the land as as they march. Um, uh, And this is what Xenophon says, on their march, they arrived in villages in which the guides, these are the Persian guides, showed them where to get provisions There was a great deal of grain and palm wine and a sour drink made from the same by boiling. As for the dates from the palms, ones like those one sees among the Greeks were kept for the servants, but those stored for the masters were handpicked, wonderful in their beauty and large size, and their appearance was no different from amber. They also dried some and stored them as treats, and these were also pleasant with drink, although apt to lead to headaches. Here the soldiers also ate the head of the palm for the first time and many wondered at its form and at the peculiarity of its pleasure. This too was exceedingly apt to lead to headaches. The palm from which the head was taken would wither up completely. So very uh, quaint description of local customs and conditions, right? Uh, Yummy food that gives you a, a hangover. And yet I look at the beginning Cyrus is dead, the head has been cut off. I look at the end, the Greek generals have all had their heads cut off. And now we get headache, headache. When the head is cut off, it withers, right? And I wondered whether Xenophon isn't in this very kind of um, funny way, encouraging us to think about who's at the head in a variety of human organizations Right, are most human things like palm trees where there's basically nothing going on all along the trunk and then only the top is this beautiful part, right, with beautiful fruit. But if you cut the top off, the the whole thing dies, right? Does that explain Cyrus? Does it explain Clearchus? And does it show that there's something about the Greeks that is different from this? are not like palm trees or a palm tree. So that's my weird thought. <laughs> the Greeks would have,
2: I'm just trying to follow out the metaphor, would not be so dependent upon the head. So you have in mind, there's a, I mean, are you talking about the, there's a different regime such that all the way down there's people capable of leading um, as opposed to, you know, the, the Cyrus model,
1: or what, what do you have in mind
2: as the alternative he's, he's pointing to?
1: So this thought about, um, our virtue and our weapons as opposed to the beneficence of, uh, somebody at the top, a ruler, uh, in whom you invest your hopes. Uh, and when you do invest your hopes in that head, uh, it's, it's sweet and intoxicating maybe, um, and then you hurt later on, right? Something like that. So these Greeks, um, they've tasted some of this, I think, right? The whole reason they're there is because Cyrus made them hope, yeah, right? And um, Clearchus, it seems like he didn't do as good a job of making them hope. Um, let me just uh, flip it around too. We haven't talked a lot about what's up with the Persians right now. Um, because if it's true that they could destroy the Greeks at any time, why don't they, right? And it turns out that when the Greeks stumble on the Persians, the Persians, they freak out. And one of the reasons they do, I think, is if you kill the king, they're going to wither, right? Everything's going to fall apart. So they too are palm trees. They've got everything invested in the head. And maybe the last thing I'll say is the head doesn't have to be human. It might even be worse if the head is some kind of god rather than a human being.
0: Yeah, that makes sense in terms of just anti-fragile systems, right? And and emergent systems versus kind of non-organic. Even though the palm tree is an organic, um, an organic system, but you, uh, you know, I'm thinking through like in Marine Corps land. Um, you know every ver- versus your more traditional military setup right like use use the centurion idea as something mm-hmm. that people have a general knowledge of it's just like one person in charge of 100 people right and it's a very kind of top heavy command structure as opposed to most modern militaries where everything is broken up into small units and everything is built around small units so that hypothetically like in marine corps land you know, the base unit of maneuver is the fire team, which is one fire team leader and three people, you know? And then it goes to the squad where you have a squad leader and three fire teams. It goes to platoon where you have a platoon leader and three squads. Mm -hmm. And this redundancy happens over and over and over again. So even if you chop off the head, right? You always have an executive officer there that's ready to take charge if the CO gets schwacked but even if you lose whole units you still know who's in charge and you have a clean command structure so even if you do take heavy casualties you can kind of you don't even have to reorganize so to speak like you know exactly who's in charge and in most situations friction and communications dependent so you know I think I like like drawing out this I I mean it it gives me it's. I really like that Xenophon used this and, and put this in and hopefully is using it as some kind of literary device, um, but also pointing out the difference between a top heavy command structure and a more, let us say, just to use all of the buzzwords that I can fit into this little diatribe, a more fractal, um, oh, good, <laughs> a, more, a more fractal situation.
1: Yeah, and I think just to stress one aspect of what you've laid out, proximity to the place where the decisions are made seems to be connected with realism about what's possible, right? If you're close to the person who says we're going to do this or we're going to do that, then you can say, hey, you know, this is what I can do. This is what we can't do. Um, if there's a great distance, if in fact the, the ruler is a being of a different kind from you, right, then you might. Not no, you might have all kinds of wild ideas about what that being can do and what's possible, right? So that distance could be very disorienting. It could lead to a big hangover.
0: And I think that might be a, a good a good place to end it. Book two. Uh we are we are mission complete on book two. So thank you, Shiloh. Thank you, Jeff. Uh thank you, dear listeners. We appreciate um, you guys tuning in. And you can also check us out on all the socials at combat. And classics so we will see you all for book three here shortly and we should have the uh iliad episodes here dropping pretty soon so you can get even more brian jeff and shiloh on uh, a bunch of obscure greek books that's our jam that's what we do so the greek jam (laughs) uh, yeah yeah that's that's what we're about so thanks fellas yeah uh, thanks
1: guys great talking with you yeah